Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of From the Lighthouse. I'm Stephanie. I'm here today with our producer Jimmy and my colleague and good friend Kirsten. Hi Jimmy and Kirsten. And today we are continuing our series um, called Teen Adaptations or Teen Adaptations of Classic um, novels, books, of plays of some kind. And um, the text that we're doing today is the 1999 film She's All That, which is a very loose adaptation of um, George Bernard Shaw's play Pygmalion. Um, and I suppose the original Greek myth that lies behind um, that particular play. And I am going to ask Kirsten, first of all, what she thought of She's All That. Well, <laughs> Um, this is like, okay, so the, the, the adaptations we've covered so far have largely been really iconic movies um, and really strong parts of my own teen upbringing. Um, this one falls into that category only in the sense that I did watch it when I was a teen and it was actually on um, one of my first real dates with a boy. <laughs> <laughs> we went, um, I think, you know, we, we met, he didn't go to my school, so we went to the only sort of meeting place that we could get to in suburban Sydney. And we went and we got lollies, we got popcorn, and then we went and saw She's All That. Did you and, hold hands? Oh, uh, yes, I think we did. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so, and... Well, so this was 99, I think I was 14. So it was a really innocent sort of just little, almost like a kid's date. Um, but I haven't watched it since then. So what, as in, well, I have, I watched it in preparation for this podcast, but I haven't returned to it like I have with um, 10 Things Ahead About You or Clueless or any of those others. So it was really interesting comparing my 14-year-old memories of this movie while on an exciting date with a real boy <laughs> with my... Um, 35-year-old perspective, um, particularly, um, you know, with the advances that society has hopefully made, or at least the awareness a lot of people have gained, um, or possibly lost um, to do with gender and class and things like that. So as a movie, watching, I don't remember loving it at the time. I didn't hate it. I thought it was okay. It was enjoyable enough. Watching it again this time, there were a few moments that I thought were funny, um, but for the most part, it was just a bit of a, a, a bit of a mediocre, like, okay, this is extremely predictable. And I can't believe he just did that. And Zach, when are you going to wake up and be, you know, <laughs> get a backbone? I just, um, there were a few moments where I was thinking, what on earth is this? Um, so that's just as a movie, but as an adaptation, I think it also falls into the meh kind of category. Um, so as an adaptation of Pygmalion, Pygmalion is arguably more feminist than, and that was, what, 1913? It's arguably more feminist than the 1999 She's All That. Um, obviously, She's All That is possibly more... Um, based on the My Fair Lady movie and musical, which were um, adapted um, from Pygmalion as well. And they changed the ending. So um, George Bernard Shaw's Pygmalion doesn't have that classic romantic ending. She, she walks out, basically. Um, they don't end up together. But um, My Fair Lady changes that, and then she's all that. We have the classic 
scene at the end where you know they're kissing and sixpence none the riches kiss me is playing um and in fact i think that song is the most memorable part of of the movie <laughs> um excuse so, me that song belongs to dawson's creek thank you <laughs> i know it was such a, such a <laughs> part of that year I, I know it's like the 90s song <laughs> yeah exactly um so i don't know like it so the original text like pygmalion and my fair lady are obviously centrally concerned with issues of class and gender this kind of reforming this gutter snipe woman into an upper class lady by training her by molding her by shaping her and sculpting her um and then you know but but the the beauty of it lies really in the fish out of the fish out of water scenario that we get with her and she's showing her spunk um, and her feisty kind of um, nature there, and I, that I love. My Fair Lady is just such a an enjoyable film, I think. Um, and you know, even I think you know, two lines out of each. They're different lines, but that's the same energy, the same moment. Um, in Pygmalion, I think the line is um, so Eliza Doolittle says, "Walk, not bloody likely," and it was really shocking at the time. And obviously, with um, Audrey Hepburn's. Uh, film version, she's, you know, she's at the races, move your blooming ass. And I remember as a kid laughing my head off at that line. I thought it was so funny. Um, so we have those classic moments of the, the fish out of water where she returns to her sort of nature before. And you get that kind of class dynamic. And obviously there's a gendered um, aspect as well with the will they, won't they get together. And Henry Higgins is basically abusive treatment of Eliza while shaping her. And I think... Um, it's just really interesting the way that she's all that just doesn't do as well as its source texts in treating these issues. It's just quite bland. It's a very privileged idea of class. Um, her father, so Lainey's father owns his own business, his own home. You know, he's a single dad and he manages to make it all work and they're quite comfortable. And have you seen the pool in their backyard? <laughs> Um, because, you know, he runs a pool business. They're, they're quite comfy. And so it's basically that quite privileged level and that's supposed to represent the lower class compared to the rich kids at school. Um, so it's very privileged. It's extremely white. And this is never more prevalent than um, watching it this year with the Black Lives Matter movement going on. You just, like, this is something that it got called out for, you know, in... Uh, one of the, the famous parodies of the movie, not, not another teen movie, which basically takes all of the movies we've discussed and takes them to task and sends them up. Um, but this one, it sends up quite rightly for just having a token black guy who just basically stays out of the conversation and says things like, damn, and that's whack. <laughs> um, or then, you know, Usher, who is the DJ, and that's his role to just be the school's DJ? Like... What? <laughs> like, he just sits in his like little radio booth being a DJ because that's what black dudes do. They do music. You know, it's just so ridiculously <laughs> backward in that sense. And I agree, Kirsten. Like, I was watching, um, I was watching it last night and thinking to myself, like, these are the supposedly poor people, right? Because her father's the pool, the, the pool builder, pool cleaner for, for all of these, um, these rich kids. I'm like, you live in a massive house that has a massive basement that can be converted into like an art studio for yeah. lady with like a beautiful pool that's done up with lights that go on and at a flick of a button. Like, what is this supposed to be like the the out of you know the out of towners, like the the lower class people mixing it with the rich kids? I'm like, give me that house. 
Yeah, exactly. Oh, unbelievable. It's, it's so dripping with um, privilege and particularly white privilege in that way, I think. Mm. I will say that Usher manages to come out of this film, not unsurprisingly, he's the... He's just Usher, isn't he? He's just yeah, cool. Well, he's, Usher is great, so. <laughs> Usher, Usher, you know, and he's, he, he's, he, in that film, isn't dated. I don't think he suffers in any way from this film. No, and he, he gets um, to dance, which is what you do with Usher. You get him to dance, so, you know, they, they knew how to use him. how to dance. Yeah. We, we get that. One thing I did like about um, this film was that, obviously, that iconic coordinated choreographed dance scene and that's to, to what that we talked about this with Easy A and Easy A says you know when um Olive Pendergast says I wanted my choreographed dance scene this is the film she's talking about that famous um fat boy slim <laughs> scene where they all dance and I just really wanted that for my own high school formal and you know we, it didn't happen I guess we needed Asha to teach us the movie Asha had been in our high school formals yeah the evergreen <laughs> sentence <laughs> Oh dear, I, I I absolutely agree with you, Kirsten. I was rewatching last night, as I said, and I don't know. There's just nothing to this movie. There's even the the um the fundamental conceit of the Pygmalion myth and the Pygmalion play and My Fair Lady is that he's doing sh- some sort of shaping of her into, you know, an ideal woman, whatever that particular society thinks of as an ideal woman. But he doesn't do anything with her apart from he brings his sister over to pluck her eyebrows. That's pretty <laughs> much all that happens. She yeah, just she just contacts when she doesn't want to. Exactly, and I'm like, I, it's not that I wanted the the movie to to suggest that there was something wrong with her, but or that she needed to be changed in some way. But it just doesn't even do what the fundamental premise of the of the source text does. So I was like, well, what is the point? You know, all that happens is that you know she gets dressed up gets her eyebrows plucked put you know has a haircut is put in a red dress oh she's suddenly a prom queen okay um so it doesn't really do much with that aspect of the of the um the source text but then it also does nothing with him either like the the like the the idea of his supposed deepness is the fact that he doesn't want to go to dartmouth great like who cares I know, and that hacky sack performance, which is supposed to represent his attempts to go inward and reveal some part of himself that's really quite deep. Never let it stop. (laughs) I mean, like, I will say, like, well done to Freddie Prince Jr. for playing that with a straight face. Yeah. And they actually got a professional sort of hacky sack player to come in and teach him how to do it. So he did fairly (laughs) well with that. Can we Um, just, uh, like, pause on the fact you said a professional hacky sack? I mean, it's a skill. If you tried to do it, it's hard. I'm sure. <laughs> um, no, but I, I agree. They don't really, again, I think this comes down to the class issue. It's, it's not a big enough gap for that massive transformation. In, and that means they basically don't really address class properly in the no. film either. They're no. not that far apart. And, also, and, and yeah, um, it's just the fact that <laughs> she's stunning to begin yes. with. Yes. <laughs> Um, you know, with her glasses, with her scruffy hair, with her overalls with paint on them, especially watching it nowadays when that is kind of a really cool look. Yeah. She's, she's edgy and she's cool. Like, she's not in any way dorky. And, in fact, the film um, performs a lot of the misogyny that, um, that I think it reinforces in a large way when they're trying to choose a girl for him and they focus on her. And, he, you know, they look around at all these other girls and he says, 
fat I can handle, weird boobs, bad personality, maybe a bit of fungus, come on, scary and inaccessible is another story. And he's talking about Laney. And <laughs> so like, hey, we've got issues, right, with his assessment of all these girls around him. We, but at this point in the movie, he's a bit of a jerk. We know that. He's narcissistic. Um, he's got a horrendous attitude to everyone around him. But then to pick her and say that she's scary and inaccessible, and then not long yeah. after, because she rejects him, she becomes all the more desirable because, you know, she's not like the other girls. Or like, as his sister says, um, um, she refers to other girls as like a rebound skank. Have you found a rebound skank yet? Basically, any girls that are interested in him, despite the fact that he's really good looking, he's really successful, he's popular, the most popular guy in school, why wouldn't a lot of the girls be at least superficially attracted to him? But they're called rebound skanks. And because she's not into him, she becomes a challenge. And I really don't like that idea that the, the, the most desirable girl is the one that doesn't want to be with a guy, that she becomes a challenge. Her feelings about him become a challenge to overcome. So she has to be coddled and coerced into eventually falling for him. I'm really tired of that trope. Yeah, I agree. I think they don't do anything at all to make that kind of connection or relationship much more convincing. It's just, yeah, as you said, based on the fact that she's not interested in him. But then she is interested in him really quickly for, like, no reason. All he has to do is turn up to her work and she's like, oh, okay, well, let's go on a date. In the falafel hat? I will say I love her falafel uniform. <laughs> yeah, I do, I do love that. But, like, but that's, there's no kind of attempt to show what could have caused her to be drawn to him. It's just that she's a challenge and that she's, you know, yeah, she's a nerd in this world, although she's not at all, I mean, maybe, again, this, is, this might be just time passing, but she wouldn't be coded a nerd today, not by a long stretch. No, she would be cool. She'd be funky. Um, yeah, it's just, it's all just really kind of thin. Jimmy, I'm going to bring you into this because I'm going to tell our listeners that when we discussed talking about this film jimmy was like enthusiastically into it kirsten and i weren't so much but jimmy thought it was great i think jimmy's thoughts about this film may have changed though jimmy i, I do beg to differ because uh -huh. I, kirsten did say very secretly that she did also enjoy the film as well uh steph was the only um that's because <laughs> i still hold resentment about the take off your glasses and you'll be hot <laughs> As, a, as, a girl. As, as someone told you that in the past, Steph. Well, it's just, it's in like a lot of movies, you know, just if she just took off her glasses, she'd be super hot. Sometimes, some girls need glasses to see. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm, I'm talking to, um, to two girls at the moment wearing glasses. So I feel That's I'm right. And we look great. Right we look great. You do. You do. Anyway. Um, okay. So my take on this film is one of bitter disappointment <laughs> because uh, I... I remember, okay, so I did watch this film when it came out um, and it coincided, I guess, with the last years of my teens. So I was, again, kind of the right demographic for it. Uh, and I remember enjoying the film quite a lot. But to be fair, I have not seen a film since then. So unlike Kirsten, I didn't go on a date for this film. So I have those happy memories associated with the film. Um, I think I actually went and watched it with um, a friend of mine who I'm still friends with and I actually sent her a message after I try to re-watch the film again 
for this podcast saying, have you seen this film since we watched it all those years ago? And her response was, uh, yeah, it's pretty terrible now <laughs> when you revisit it. So unfortunately, it's not a film that has uh, lasted so well. I think at the time, it kind of fell into the same category as all those sort of teen romantic comedies that were coming out. And it was riding on the wave of all those successes. And so therefore, you kind of forgave it because it, it did what all those other films did. Uh, and it was a successful formula. So, you know, you're kind of falling into that. But now with all these years behind us and looking back on it in hindsight you kind of, and, and seeing it in isolation, you kind of see all the flaws with the film. And I completely agree with everything um, that the two of you have actually said uh, about it. I think the entire class thing has been completely obliterated. The only thing that I can sort of see where they may try to instill the idea is with the fact that she's uh, an art student uh, and therefore she's not as popular. So maybe they're looking at the popularity or high school environment then as that class system um, and um, the, uh, the Zach character is then, you know, the the prom king, so he's the top of the chain, he's at the very bottom, so, uh, and, uh, you know, she, she's part of that art world, but she's even um, sort of uh, rejected by that art world as well, so she's sort of seen as the lowest of the low, I guess, from that perspective, um, and even the, the quote that Kirsten made earlier with uh, Zach saying that, you know, she's, what was it, weird and um, uh, inaccessible, or, or whatever it was, you know, I can't handle. Um, and so she's she's sort of seen from that perspective. So, but I don't think the class thing is, and I don't think it plays particularly well. And we try to analyze the whole class situation. What we end up with is, yeah, I agree, a very, very privileged stance on class. I mean, I would love to have a house like that and, and be considered poor, but you know, <laughs> most of us yeah. <laughs> do not have that, that luxury. Uh, and again, I completely agree with the whole um, transformation scene. It's very, very problematic. And I think even back then, it was always considered problematic. I remember reading a review by my favorite film um, critic, Roger Ebert, who said, you know, he would love to see a uh, transformation scene where the, the girl was actually not beautiful to begin with. Um, with this one, you know, doesn't matter what you do to her, she looks beautiful from beginning to end. Uh, of course, the same criticism can be made of Audrey Hepburn in My Fair Lady. You know, nobody in their right mind would ever see Audrey Hepburn and say, wow, what a ugly gutter snipe, <laughs> you know? She's just stunningly beautiful regardless. But at least there was sort of some attempt to, I don't know, clean her up a little bit. You know, her hair was mm. a kind of this mop and she was all But that's where, like, bit. getting rid of the class differences have meant that they can't yeah, do exactly. it, really. Yeah, so, exactly. So then you have <laughs> the class thing then, you know, uh, polishing and refining her a little bit mm. more um, to the more standardised notion of beauty, which she, you know, perfectly encapsulate so that she can pass off as a princess because if you look mm. at Audrey Hepburn, why wouldn't you be able to pass off as, as a princess, I suppose. Um, so that transformation isn't believable. Um, and it, I, I suppose it stopped becoming believable from Audrey Hepburn onwards. I mean, Audrey Hepburn has a, had a career playing that kind of ugly duckling transformation. Uh, Sabrina was mm, uh, one yeah. example. Again, not very believable. She had a ponytail, therefore she wasn't you know, the most beautiful woman you've ever seen, apparently. And then she goes and get a haircut and suddenly she becomes the most beautiful woman you've ever seen. No, not, not quite believable. So that convention, I can ignore a little bit. What I do find a little bit more unforgivable this time around is the lack of wit. Yeah. Uh, um, both Malian and My Fair Lady were very, very witty. Um, yeah, well, even the two quotes sure. that Kirsten quoted earlier, yeah. classic exactly. lines. You know. I mean, one of my favourite insults of all time is actually in Pygmalion, you know, where he says, you know, you squashed cabbage leaf. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, 
one of these days I would love to call somebody that, you know, you squashed cabbage leaf. Yeah. Um, that's a great it, insult, actually. It is, you know, it's not If a you think about a squashed cabbage leaf, that's Exactly, it, it brings about yeah. visuals, it even brings about your sensory, you know, you, you can yeah, even like smell yeah, that squashed yeah. cabbage You know, so it's, it's a very effective... So, that's, that's because um, the, it's about verbal play and verbal yeah. training, yeah. isn't it? it? It's the reason those ones are, are more successful in their transformation is because it's less about what she looks like, more about how she's speaking, because they're the, the elocution and things like that. They're and behavior, trying. behaviors in different contexts as well. Yeah. 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 So the yeah. test to see if she's a princess is is with a, um, a linguist who can try and tell by the way she speaks where she's from, and mm. he can't in the end and that indicates yes. that has been a success yeah. um yeah which, yeah which then becomes much more criticism of the class system which looks yeah. at superficial things like the way a person speaks as opposed mm. to the more internal things such as their inner intelligence or their inner wit uh which um you know eliza doolittle always had um so whereas with this one again you know we don't really see that she you know uh, she openly admits to not being a smart girl so you know when he tries to pick her up she's like you know um you know I i'm not smart i can't help you um you, just because i'm a dork doesn't mean that i'm necessarily smart and he's like you know um, i've got the fourth highest gpa in in the grade so we're kind of left thinking well okay well why are you going after her other than as a challenge you know um so i think the whole romance thing is not quite believable mainly because of the lack of of wit in the entire uh, film and that lack of wit i felt was uh the biggest disappointment for me because I do remember the film being funny, but watching it this time around, I didn't laugh, not even once. Um, I ended up cringing quite a lot. Uh, and I ended up just sort of went, oh, don't, don't no, 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 please don't, <laughs> let's not go there. So, you know, even when Kirsten was describing the whole hacky sack thing, I was just internally cringing going, oh, please, I, I don't even want to remember that scene anymore. So it, it hasn't survived well. Um, and I think it also, I, I completely agree, I think it also um, does a disservice to the original both the play and the myth itself, which is much more complex, much more interesting. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that I think uh, for me was always very, very problematic um, with the adaptation um, with My Fair Lady, uh, the adaptation from Pygmalion to My Fair Lady is what Kirsten mentioned before about the, the actual ending itself. Uh, even as a child, I remember watching that scene and going, I, I, I don't like that ending. You know, I don't like, you know, her you know, sort of saying, you know, um, I, I wash my hands and face before, you know, I, I came, I did. And I'm just there going, no, I don't, you know, and, and he's, mm. he's saying, like, Eliza, where's my shoes? And you just yeah. say, go, but, but you're, you're going back to what you were before. You know, so I felt that it, it almost feels as if every adaptation seems to dumb down qualities of the play a little bit more. So My Fair Lady wasn't um, as witty or as you know, great as Pygmalion was, but it still did a fairly good job of what it did. Mm. Whereas this one, I think, kind of removed all of the wit, removed everything that... Um, uh, had my fair lady going for it uh, and what you end up with is a stock standard um, not even romantic comedy because there's nothing funny about it just sort of a romantic story that isn't quite believable and by the end I didn't really even care whether they got together or not anymore or whether she mm. became a you know, prom queen or not and and so I was just kind of very let down by the whole experience because I just thought uh, unlike all the other adaptations that we've seen it didn't add anything. And I was thinking back to Steph's criticism of, you know, she's the man saying that it wasn't brave enough in how it tried to adapt the original source material. And I think, you know, I, I disagree with her with that film and I still do, uh, just to be clear. Uh, <laughs> but with this one, I think that criticism is pretty much almost, you know, completely valid. It doesn't 
try to do anything different at all. And in fact, it does the complete opposite in that it dumbs down everything that was actually yeah. the original yeah. source material. And that for me is the most disappointing aspect of, of the film itself. It, it lessens the source material because all it's saying is that this girl should, I don't know, dress differently. You know, <laughs> like there's nothing. Message really, like, yay, she's more pretty now and she knows how yeah. to live more with the rich, cool kids that everyone hates. And there's nothing else about it. There's nothing else that she needs to do. There's nothing else that anybody needs to do. She just needs to wear tighter, shorter clothing. Like really, that's it. There's a subtext in there that she's gone through an emotional journey that has opened her up enough to now be recommended to the art schools she wants to go to. Like that's cool. And they they really underplay that aspect as if it's yeah. less important than her romance with Zach and I agree. I he's such a. I was about to swear there. He's such a <laughs> an unlikable guy in many ways. Like he's so manipulative in his treatment of her, and I think that goes on far too long. Mm. I get why it starts out like that because he's a narcissistic jock, and he doesn't mm. get why a girl wouldn't love him without him putting in any effort to understand her. But he does that for too long. He actually says to her, and I'm cringed at this line, when he says, would it hurt me to smile once in a while? And for any woman that has been... Oh, my God. I always wanted to walking down the hit street, him. Oh, my God. So that, I was like, really? I think I said out loud, really? <laughs> and, you know, even the makeover scene, she has expressed um, quite clearly that she does not want to go out that evening. He knocks on the door he manipulated the football, football team to come over and clean her whole house, thus removing the excuse she used to get out of hanging out with him. Yeah, and it's like, respect the excuse, dude. Come on. Exactly. <laughs> her autonomy. It's just so manipulative. Um, even when, he's, you know, he's coming down into the basement and they have their first moment of um, when she's down there painting and they have their first moment of connection. She has actually said, no one's allowed down here. But, oh, no, it's Zach. So what does he do? On he goes down the stairs. <laughs> like, rules don't apply to me. This woman's protestations against my presence don't apply to me. I just thought, I was like, come on, Zach. Just give her a bit of respect. Just talk a bit more. Like, actually, you know... I don't know, just talk to her rather than constantly forcing yourself on her. It was really weird. And even the way that the, sh the, the movie sort of sets us up to kind of admire those acts as if he's really persistent in his breaking down her emotional barriers and all of that. Yeah. And it just, it doesn't ring true at all because there's really, there's nothing to indicate what she might see in him. There's nothing to indicate how specifically he's broken down her emotional barriers. They've hung out a few times. They've go to the beach. That's about it. Um, there's no there's kind of scene um, where, and this is the iconic, disgusting scene that the directors basically put in for the sake of the male members of the audience to keep them entertained in what they thought would otherwise be an uninteresting romantic movie. The uh, the pizza on and the pubes scene. Yeah. Where <laughs> So and it just goes on for so long. I'm like, why is there this interjection of like 10 minutes of pizza pew? What is happening? And then the disgusting comedy, but it also like it's obviously he's showing up to stand up for Simon in front of everyone. Um, you know, so this is a classic high school trope as well. When the jock finally stands up for the little guy, risking his reputation to do what's right, basically just to impress the, you know, the girl that he's after. Um, yeah. 
And I, I think that's kind of the the key to why the film doesn't actually work. Um, and it's, it's, I guess, trying to translate the Henry Higgins character into this uh, almost knight in shining armour, this heroic mm-hmm. person that we are meant to admire. Henry Higgins is a bastard. And that's kind of what makes his character okay. actually quite interesting. And know, everybody and, knows it. Like, that's, that's acknowledged it. by the film. It's and, not like the film he, tries to pretend that's not true. Exactly. And he acknowledges it. You know, he knows yeah. that he, you know, he's not the, the nicest person in the world. Um, and he doesn't try to be the nicest person in the world. And it's not actually what Eliza liked about him. Um, you know, she, she doesn't say, you know, I, I don't care, you know, whether, you know, you, you, you scream or yell at me, you know, it's just... Um, so she understands that about him. Whereas this one, I think, because it's, um, the film is inviting us to identify and like the Zach character, it then puts him in a very dull position. So what I end up, you know, um, taking out of, of the film is that both, um, I didn't identify with either of them and I just thought they were very dull characters by, by the end of it. Whereas with, you know, Pygmalion or even My Fair Lady, yeah, you may hate Henry Higgins and you may think, you know, he's, he's a bit of a scumbag, but dear God, he's got a character. You, know, you have to admire interesting. his... He's interesting. You know, he's, he's, he's witty and, you know, he's, you know mm. he's quite vicious at times, but, you know, at least he's got character. Uh, and Eliza, you really get to see her develop. You know, the mm. more she's able to articulate herself, the more you get to see into her mind as well, which is really amazing. Whereas with this one, she kind of stays the same throughout the entire yeah, film. Yeah, there's no doesn't, change. Yeah. There's, there's no change other than her physical appearance, which doesn't really even change all that much anyway. So she, she kind of, yeah, from beginning to end, she hasn't really gone on any kind of journey or any kind of trajectory. Um, whereas um, in Pygmalion, she, hasn't, she has gone on quite a, a lengthy mm. journey but what's more interesting is our perception of her you know we write her off at the beginning because we write her off as this you know sort of poor trash and you know uh, uneducated person but as we get to know her more and more she shines as a character and she becomes this you know really really interesting uh, and quite um, you know pro-feminist character actually uh, whereas this one you're kind of I mean th- th- there was a scene that actually I never I never realized how terrible it was until I rewatched it this time around. And that was actually the volleyball scene. It was a very strange scene for me to hate. But when I was watching it, I was just kind of like, but that's just playing into all those stereotypes that you're trying to say that you don't believe in, you know, like uh, girls aren't good at sports. So what do they do? They show the girls not being good at sport, being terrible mm-hmm. at, at volleyball and, you know, uh, hitting the, the guys on the head with the, with the balls and everything. And I'm just they're going, but you've just proved the stereotype rather than try to, you know, um, subvert the stereotype to some degree. So um, I thought it was just, yeah, the word that keeps coming to my mind over and over again is bland. The characters it are bland. It is bland, yeah. The stories are bland, you know. The and even the, 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 the kind of attempts to have, like, comedic subplots in the film even fall flat. I don't know if this is because we are, you know, 21 years later <laughs> on, but the, the real-world storyline... Do not care. Oh. I mean, Matthew Lillard's character. I mean, you know, maybe that was like he was funny in 1999, but now I'm like, oh, that's just tiresome. Um, the only the only part that I found sort of half comedic, half funny was the um, the running joke about her father's Jeopardy answers, where he oh, was. <laughs> Where he, he, he gets them, you know, like uh, this edition of the Bible and he said he'll kill a Packard and, and it's supposed to be the Gutenberg Bible, you know, like the, the, the disjunct between what the correct answer is and what his answers are. That's quite funny, but that's just like a throwaway, you know, three-minute scene. That kind of, a, you know, approach to kind of humour I would like to see from this, but the rest just fell super flat. Like her best friend is a non-character. Um, her, you know, the, 
the school bitch, I suppose, for another word, lack of a better word, is just a like a ridiculous caricature. There's just nothing light and comedic. You know, we've talked a lot in these um, this series of podcasts about these great side characters, um, these great witty, funny moments in a lot of these other films, and this just didn't have anything that apart from that really small Jeopardy moment. It just didn't have any of that lightness or that comedic touch to it to make it, to, you know, to give some sort of texture to it. It's just everything about it kind of just falls mm. flat. You're thinking, well, why do I, I don't care about any of these people. <laughs> and, and I think it yeah. came out the same year as 10 Things I Had About You, which has a similar plot in ways, um, but it's just so much better. It's much, um, it, it's so much more intelligent. It's so witty, yeah. it's so clever. So layered, and it does something um, I think really quite sophisticated with its adaptation of its source material. When you think that they came out in the same year, it re- I think it really reflects um, negatively on this one. Uh, and particularly mm. just to go back to what we were saying about that that kind of um, that pressure for the happy ending to turn any kind of interaction between a man and a woman into an inevitable romance plot where they end up together. Um, and that's not even necessarily a modern thing, although I agree every, every adaptation of Pygmalion has gotten, you know, has watered down that fieriness into the romance plot. But this is something that um, was even happening with Jaws' play when it was on stage. Um, the actors started tr- pleasing the audience in the end, basically, by suggesting that they would end up together that Eliza and Higgins would end up together. And Shaw had a real problem with this. And he actually wrote uh, a few years afterwards um, to basically justify his ending where they do not end up together. And he says, and it's really quite funny, um, he says, the rest of the story, as in what happens to Eliza after she goes away from Henry Higgins, need not be shown in action and indeed would hardly need telling if our imaginations were not so enfeebled by their lazy dependence on the ready-mades and reach-me-downs of the rag shop in which romance keeps its stock of happy endings to misfit all stories. I love um, that. He would have hated she's all that. He totally would have hated it. And he says people in all directions have assumed for no other reason than that she became the heroine of a romance that she must have married the hero of it. This is unbearable, not only because her little drama, if acted on such a thoughtless assumption, must be spoiled, but because the true sequel is patent to anyone with a sense of human nature in general and feminine instinct in particular. Eliza, in telling Higgins she would not marry him if he asked her, was not coquetting she was announcing a well-considered decision. And that's true. Like, as Jimmy's mentioned, basically Higgins is a bastard. He's a misogynist. He's horrendous to her. And he, he ref- she even tells him, like, could, could you just treat me nicely? And he, he says, basically, why would I? You know, and he, he has a whole speech about how um, men are the, the better sex. And he just, why would he change his values? And therefore, why would she want to be with him and continue that when she's got this lovely young man who's much closer to her in age as well? Yeah. Um, Why why wouldn't she go with that younger, nicer person? Um, Not to be ageist or anything, obviously, but I think, you know... (laughs) Well, I um, think that there are many reasons to go for you know, to go for him rather than Higgins, and well, age is certainly yeah. one of them. But like you know, you're right. His the 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 original play has just such this feminist consciousness that yeah, it's and just I, completely I stripped out. And then, so my fair lady obviously undoes that. It succumbs to the Hollywood pressure of the romantic happy ending, and it kind mm. of forces them together in a way that is 
not that satisfying because it's played as a joke um, that they continue in their roles, although the you know, the undercurrent is that they at least have recognised their feelings for each other. So, mm. so now it's done in jest rather than seriousness. But then when we come to She's All That, yeah, it's just they lose all that sense of jest. There's no subtext. It's just plain, bland romance on the top. And so, like, they didn't, with Zach's character... Because he's, like Jimmy was saying, because he's supposed to be likeable, he's supposed to be a hero that all the girls in the audience want to be with, he can't be that misogynistic anymore. Um, so when, you know, when even My Fair Lady, um, when that is played on stages now in theatres, so I think um, there was an Australian production of it in 2017. It's actually, I think it was directed by Julie Andrews, who was obviously, um, you know, the original Broadway star um, instead of Audrey Hepburn, who pipped her for the, the film role purely because, um, because of the lack of film experience that Julie Andrews had at the time. Um, so when, the, when this was uh, redone on stages, apparently there was some real, like the reviews and a lot of the people in the audience were audibly sort of gasping at the misogyny displayed by Higgins. Um, and apparently that was really satisfying for the actor playing him because, you know, he's like, you know, that's what um, theatre does. It's supposed to provoke thought in people mm. and provoke emotional rise. And that's just something She's All That didn't do. It didn't pro- It didn't play Zach as the kind of character that we hate because, you know, they've taken someone who was supposed to be misogynistic and tried to make him desirable. And so what they've left with is just some watered down, basically narcissistic, sexist guy who doesn't really learn his lesson by the end he just kind of steps down enough to like her but it doesn't change his attitudes in general and it's yeah just, well yeah, see not satisfying well that's what i mean about like a, a bravery in adaptation because you know if you think about it an adaptation of this um that say took on higgins misogyny right and allowed us to see a misogynist character that would i mean i'm not saying that i want you know every more misogynists in films because we have a lot of them but what what they would allow us to do is actually explore the misogyny of the teenage boy and that kind of toxic masculinity in the in the teenage boy and schools as a kind of hotbed of misogyny and sexism and so forth that would allow a kind of exploration of those issues here because we don't get that we just get a nothing character it's not like he's even likable because like i said the only kind of um depth that they try to give him is that he's really clever but doesn't know where to go to college like and that's just again in you know two throwaway scenes with his you know looking through his college acceptances and then his father saying well you've stuffed this up that's it that is the whole subplot of of his supposed depth right um, Which we're so privileged that you know we we yeah. just kind of roll our eyes and say oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. what a Poor terrible you. thing you've been yeah, you've been accepted yeah, yeah, you've no, been accepted boo, boo, into boo, boo. every Ivy co- Ivy League college in in America. Yeah, well, what you what know, a tough life you you, you do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and your and your dad will be sort of wildly upset with you if you don't go to Dartmouth. Great. Yeah. <laughs> no, awful. Well, apparently, that's resolved with a couple of lines of bland dialogue. Exactly. It's, it's not even like a. <laughs> exactly. It's not like an actual plot. So yeah, you know, you don't get any exploration of, of misogyny. You don't get any exploration of class. So what do you get? Is nothing. You just sort of get a very unsatisfying romance because they're stripped away anything that would allow you to ask the, like bigger, deeper, more interesting questions. Yeah. And you just get like this boring dude um, is in you know ends up falling in love with 
this girl who is always beautiful but just decides to wear more revealing clothing by the end of the movie. Like, great, you know. <laughs> what is this film? See, what is it, what's it trying to say? That's the other thing they stripped away um, from the originals was basically in Pink Alien and in My Fair Lady, Eliza Doolittle is aware of the bet from the beginning. Yes, yes. Yeah, that's an important thing. Yeah. Part of, she requests to be part of this this um, experiment, basically. To She wants to um, learn how to speak better so she can work in a flower shop. That's her idea of being wealthy and upper class and comfortable, which is adorable. She's such a... I love her character. And in fact, yeah. she, she, she initiated it. You know, she goes to... Henry Higgins, yeah, says, you know, I'm, I'm here to, you know, take up your challenge, you know, that you can transform me. Uh, right. And in fact, this, this deals with one of the biggest problems that I found that we've always been talking here in, in all these different films, which is the, the um, not necessarily fidelity to the plot of the text, but fidelity to the theme of the text. Yeah. And I feel that this one actually isn't at all. Um, in fact, it doesn't actually quite fit into the whole Pygmalion story or the Pygmalion myth in any way. It's probably closer to the Cinderella story than it is to the Pygmalion story. It almost like um, they got confused between My Fair Lady and Pretty Woman. You know, they, they wanted to... Well, she mentions to, Pretty Woman, yeah. yeah. And so, you know, what they ended up doing was Pretty Woman rather than My Fair Lady. Um, because yeah. the whole point of the Pygmalion myth is that um, Pygmalion, the, the sculptor, falls in love with his own creation. Mm. Um, and mm. he has to have sculpted, created her, which both uh, the play and um, the musical... Uh, demonstrated that you know he transformed her through language as opposed to you know um, sculpting her through clay but in this one he didn't actually transform her at all really what ends up being transformed is him so it's in a way reversed yeah it it kind of reversed the Pygmalion story a little bit but not in a uh, intelligent way just in a silly um, thoughtless way because it's it's almost like him saying he he falls in love with you know his, his creation but he didn't actually create it her she was already created and he just fell in love with you know, yeah this, they this. help each other open up a little bit but i mean ultimately it was deception the, the first off the bet that she doesn't know about the deception in that he is trying to shape her and she gets kind of forced into it basically because he keeps just turning up when she says no and forcing people into her door like his sister to make her over I, I read a, um, an interview that was done in the last few years with Rachel Lee Cook, who has kids now, and she basically she said that that's she's all that is not something that she'll be giving them to watch, despite the fact that she's in it. She says like that that for that reason, um, the whole makeover like a girl needs to be made stereotypically beautiful mm. to be desirable. Like that, if that's the takeaway message, it's a really bad one. Um, well, so I just can't think of any other message that you could get from it. You know, because it's... Yeah, that is the message, essentially, whether it intended yeah. it to be that well, or well, not. Well, no, the, the message is, you know, if you accept into Ivy League colleges, you must accept. You know, that's the message. <laughs> yeah, like building pools is good. I don't know what else you could get from this film besides, you know, um, I don't know, like open up to people, but even that is not really very well expressed or dealt with. I mean, that seems to be her, you know, the art teacher tells her, you know, you finally opened up, blah, blah, blah. But how he has inspired that is not at all dealt with. Um, It's so thin that the only possible message you could get out of this is, you know, you're beautiful, show it off. Like, 
<laughs> and I think, you know, a, a great adaptation has to add something to the original source yeah, material. Yeah, or, or provoke a different way of thinking about it. Provoke a different material. way, you know. So, yeah. you know, the original myth of Pygmalion is that Pygmalion falls in love with Galatea, his creation, uh, but Galatea never gets a voice. You know, she's mm. just this sculpture that he's created and he's fallen in love with his creation in a way to critique the way we fall in love with, you know, the, the, the people that we do fall in love with. You know, we, we tend to create and fall in love with our own creation as opposed to the actual... An idea of that person, yeah. That person, yeah. the person itself. And then what Shaw did with it, with it was to give Galatea a voice, to say, well, what happens if the, the person you created was actually a, a living flesh, you know, live person with their own personality, own sense of voice? Well, she would leave you. That's what she would happen because you're, you know, you're this controlling... Um, mm horrible person so why would she stay with you she would actually leave you which is what she you know she ends up doing um so a successful adaptation has to do that to the source material this one instead of building on that just sort of um lessens it and changes it so completely that by the end of it i mean when kirsten mentioned there was actually a, a adaptation of pigmalion it didn't really occur to me uh, even in my memory of the actual film i thought oh, I, I can sort of see that it's Pygmalion, but maybe I missed something. So when I was watching it again this time around, I was very careful to try to find those signs that, you know, uh, of, of its source material itself. I wasn't, um, as we've spoken in the past, looking for fidelity to the original source, but at least looking for some of those same ideas, some of those same themes that he wishes to explore. But he doesn't actually do that to any degree and certainly not successfully. Um, mm. And certainly isn't recognisable to me uh, uh, as a Pygmalion story of any kind purely for the fact that he doesn't actually sculpt or create her. She no. is fully created. Well, I mean, even like last week when we were talking about, or two weeks ago when we were talking about EZA, you know, that is obviously an extremely loose adaptation. In terms of plot, there's really no um, significant plot overlaps, but it's all about thinking about the theme and commenting on the relevance and, you know, looking for connections across time between um, ideas, really. Um, and it acknowledges that. We talked a lot about how it, it kind of is this witty kind of metatextual kind of thing where it, it constantly draws attention to what it's actually doing this has nothing like there's it's there's no real plot over overlaps as we talked about there's no real thematic overlaps and so even it's you know sort of claim to be an adaptation of of pygmalion it's just paper thin because it's not doing anything with the story it's just sort of saying well she undertakes a transformation therefore it's pygmalion you know, it's it's only really a makeover, really, that is actually at issue here. And the idea of like the bet, although again, as we've said, that idea of the bet is fundamentally changed because she's not in on it. Um, so it, it really doesn't do anything really as an adaptation, except in the kind of really, really vaguest way. And like, you know, we've talked about watching it as, as teens. I remember seeing it as a teenager and not really liking it all that much, but I did I hadn't read Pygmalion at that stage of my life. Now that I've read it, I'm like I have less even less respect than I did for it because it's just not doing anything interesting at all, really. Can I put my art hat on for a second and just talk about the way art functions in this? I love an art hat. Yes, go on. <laughs> So obviously we've got um, Lainey as an artist is um, scary and inaccessible to pop culture. Art is already on the outer. We know that's a bit of a tired cultural stereotype. But the actual art she produces in the beginning, I thought it's pretty cool. She's, she's really socially conscious of all the environmental issues going on and that's presented as uncool. 
And um, the teacher, her art teacher says, that, I'm not seeing you. Where are you in these artworks? Yeah, Which what I was I'm like, why the hell does she have to be in these artworks? <laughs> these are about society, about what's going on. Um, the other girls in class, um, Misty and uh, someone else, produce these clown paintings, right? And that's meant to be all really cool and really open and emotional. Like it's, again, this, this representation of inner sadness as a clown is uh, just, could they have picked a more cliche image to use? But I just thought, given that we've already established that the, the mean girls, the cool art students paint clowns, the painting that um, Lainey eventually produces with her mother in it, with a clown face is meant to represent her ultimate journey into being more open and more original as an artist. And I just didn't get that because she's gone, she's basically, instead of going against the grain and producing stuff that is, um, you know, non-conventional, which is what good art should try to do is, is push against um, cliches and stereotypes. She, you know, she just basically does what the other girls do and suddenly the art teacher loves it. <laughs> hated that scene where she says oh you know I watched this documentary on you know human rights abuses in Mogadishu and the teacher's like well pish posh but what is you know it's where's you in this painting and I'm like actually that's a really good reason to produce a piece of art. <laughs> I think this just sort of um, underscores what the film is ultimately doing is just reducing all this her cool what makes her cool is her individuality her social consciousness like her her wittiness and they're just shaving her down until she just looks and sounds like everyone else and produces yeah. like everyone else. And that that's kind of all the film does is just whittle her away until she's a shell of her former self. Yeah, the way that, that like that, that that's taken on is like, you know, oh well she's got this social consciousness. What a joke. She's so closed off from the world. Like what? <laughs> like it's actually really interesting that she was translating her social consciousness into art, talking about watching documentaries and so forth. Like, and then all that's important. And this is what bugs me is that women's art is always read through women's life. Like yeah. artwork is, is all about, you know, we say that about women writers. We say that about women artists, you know, men are reacting to the world, whereas women are reacting to their life, their individual yeah. lives. And this film again, replicates that. And again, says that that's actually the point of women's art is to represent something of their deeper in emotional world rather than being something that they have like a conscious control over and might want to produce in re relation to the social world in which they're part of like everything about this movie just sort of gets it wrong you know like which, great. Is, ironic, which is ironic when you think about um uh, a film that predates it by what about three or four years clueless where the impetus for for change is actually show, social awareness you know it's exactly you know, it shares awareness of you know what's going on with Haiti and her desire to you know, bring about social change that actually brings about her own transformation um mm. which is a much more you know um progressive transformation whereas this one is much more regressive transformation she's going back instead of going forward um which is the direction hopefully you should be going uh rather than backwards so there's a kind of and we kind of get that sense with the film as well, you know, that it it isn't trying to do anything um, unique, interesting, progressive. It's just uh, reading the same old formulas over and over and over again. Um, and I think by the end of the film, I just kind of got the sense that what he wanted to do, it achieved, which was to make this kind of successful film that people would enjoy, but really there's nothing that you can get out of it. And as much mm -hmm. as we try to delve and dig deeper, which mm. is hard. We we keep hitting. There's nothing the wall. there. 
there's nothing there. We just keep hitting a wall every time we try to dig a little bit deeper and we just end up. And I think this is the the beauty of analysis sometimes that, you know, when you realize a text isn't so good because you just keep digging deeper and the more, the deeper, the deeper you dig, um, the more problems you run into. And I think we we can sort of see it with all of our (laughs) own analysis. Every time we try to go a little bit deeper, we we, we hit a wall that we were very frustrated by. We're kind of like, no, but that's a really bad message. And I hate that that message and you know i'm not even sure they want to give that message um because they're not even aware that they're actually putting that out there mm. um, so it's it, it's a very problematic um text from that perspective does anyone have anything to add to our analysis of she's all that because i think this is a pretty thin movie that we're pretty much mined for mm. what there is to mine as, as jimmy says that we just keep heading for calls because this just there's no there there <laughs> No, I think I've, I've ranted enough of that. I will mention that I did like, obviously it's filmed in the same high school that Buffy the Vampire Slayer was filmed Yay, at. Yay, Buffy's there. For it. So we have this classic Californian kind of um, high school and we get the little Sarah Michelle Gellar silent cameo, which she only agreed to if she, if she um, didn't have to speak any lines. And she looks peak season three, Buffy. She does. It just looks like she's in the Sunnydale cafeteria. Yeah. Um, and I also liked that there were quite a few actors in the show, um, including um, the two mean art girls, who both have roles in Buffy. One of them um, is the invisible girl. Marcy, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and the other one is the mean vampire when she finally goes to university. Um, Sunday, yeah. <laughs> yes, so that was cool, little cameos, little um, And we get, we, get a young, um, we get a young Jess from Gilmore Girls as well. He's one of the dudes from the soccer team who comes in to clean up her house. Yes. Yeah. So as far as like a little, um, a little roll call of iconic, um, you know, film and TV stars of the time, it's pretty interesting as, as a sort of capsule, a moment in time, it's an interesting um, product. But yeah, I think ultimately the fact that it's produced the same year as 10 Things I Hate About You, which is a vastly more intelligent, successful, mm. complex film, just, yeah, it speaks volumes and it goes to show why, why people basically don't watch She's All That all the time anymore. And they still can, <laughs> watch 10 things ahead about you <laughs> yeah time has really sorted out <laughs> where these these um these teen movies sit in the canon of great teen movies and she's all that is not in that canon <laughs> i think we can all agree thank you so much jimmy and kirsten for joining me to rant about um she's all that i don't think we anticipated it being such a rant fest but uh that's where we ended up no, I think, I think I think fairly we, so yeah i think when we originally pitched this idea we were going from our memories of it which yes was a teenage memory and quite a happy memory and revisiting it now <laughs> much yeah. later in our life we're kind of like oh okay this not isn't so, very good so happy yeah. <laughs> no no um well i will see you guys again in two weeks and we will um, be back with you again listeners in two weeks if you can rate and review us on apple Podcasts, that would be great um you can drop us a line at um from the lighthouse.org or you can tweet out it tweet at us at MQ English. Um, tell us what you think of She's All That or your favourite teen movies. Now I'm thinking I need to go and rewatch Not Another Teen Movie because I really want to see this um, <laughs> made fun of. Um, thanks, Jimmy and Kirsten. See ya.